As some of you may know, we're broadcasting live from San Diego, California, downtown. I'm here speaking at the Traffic and Conversion Summit, which started on Monday. My talk is tomorrow. Funny enough, my talk leads right before Snoop Dogg. So it's this could be the apex of my career, <laughs> speaking before Snoop Dogg, which is going to be super cool. And also doing a couple events tonight. So I'll be, uh, be at one with our friends from Chili Piper later on tonight, meeting some people and things like that. So... But we got a pretty good streak going here on the amount of Tuesdays that we're doing Demand Gen Live, and we're not going to miss one just because we're across the country in a different time zone. So we're here and uh, looking forward to getting into it. So where am I going to start here? We'll get we'll start on the first topic. One that I'm thinking about is the truth about marketing to the enterprise, and something that's that's been really interesting to me. I've been marketing to enterprise accounts for a long time, but running demand in what a lot of people would call ABM since 2017 to accounts that are going to be worth a quarter million ARR or more to us. And the way that I view this versus the way that I think most of the market views this is very different. And so first off, I want to kind of talk what I hear a lot of people say or what I think a lot of I know because they tell me what a lot of people think. People think that you need to do certain things in order to sell into the enterprise. You need to go outbound. You need ABM tech. You need a sales motion. You need these things. Like That's what a lot of people say, and they, that's what a lot of people think. The people that think that way and the people that say those things are either vendors that are selling you things in order to go to the enterprise, like ABM software, things like that, or there are people that have never been a part of a company that's done really effective marketing. That's where you get those two different answers. And so the topic was sparked. I was talking to uh, I was talking to a CMO yesterday, actually, about kind of like our strategy that over the past 18 months has, has allowed us to unlock conversations with major enterprise accounts that we wouldn't have dreamed of 18 months ago. And so I was talking with her, probably a $200 million ARR SaaS company that sells into marketing and targets enterprise accounts, more than $100 million in revenue. And she came back to me and was like, because I was telling her basically to go all in in our strategy podcast, LinkedIn, paid social ads, like that's how you get stuff done today, whether you're targeting marketers or anyone else. And she came back and was like, you know, Chris, the team's feeling a little bit concerned with such a heavy social strategy. And so I went back to them and I was like, okay, so what else are you considering? And then I thought to myself and I asked them, I was like, so you're a $200 million enterprise SaaS company that would fit into the enterprise based on your own definition. How did you find us? Why are we talking right now? Because you found us on LinkedIn, you went through a podcast. So you buy this way, but you think that your customers buy in a different way for whatever reason. I noticed that phenomena a lot. So people will make excuses specifically around social that my buyers aren't on there or excuses like that, not the right channel. Our companies are too big. They don't do that stuff. And then when you look at their own behavior, that's exactly how they buy, exactly how they research and things like that. And so what I'm trying to get across here when we think about this is it doesn't matter who you're going after. This is the reality of how people are buying things. What's happened is that communication has been completely shifted over the past decade, but it's really hit B2B over the past five years. 
So communication is completely shifted. No matter what type of company you are, whether you're executive, a manager, people communicate this way using the internet and these types of tools. People get information this way. People make decisions this way. And so I love, especially like David and people like that would love to talk through some questions here because I think we'll unlock even, even more information. But generally, like the assumptions about what you need in order to get into the enterprise that I'm hearing in the market are just entirely not true. The reason that you feel that way is because you haven't executed marketing well enough to actually feel the impact. Or something that I noticed a lot is that people just just generally do not give it enough time to work. So over the past like three months, we've had some of the biggest companies in the world from a B2B standpoint come inbound and want to work with us. Some of the biggest companies in the world, more than 50,000 employees, more than $20 billion in revenue, companies of that size come inbound to work with us, no outbound touches, no ABM tech, nothing by marketing. And so I'm trying to, t- I'm trying to like help people understand a lot of the ABM that's being done is really sales driven. But if you actually did marketing, you could unlock and win a lot of these accounts. The problem is it took us 18 months to do that. A lot of B2B companies are never going to go through that type of process in order to let that stuff be successful. But that's how you win the enterprise in my view. So would love, uh, love talking through a couple questions here. I see David nodding his head. Maybe we'll get a couple dialogues going. It was first a request to clarify what you mean by enterprise. So I think that'd be a good, just like definition to provide a little extra context on this topic. Everyone's got their own definition of the enterprise. Sometimes it's by company size. Sometimes it's by revenue. Sometimes it's by how much ARR the deal is going to be. So generally there's when I say enterprise, like everyone's going to have their own definition, but they know what I mean. I'm going to say that it's probably over 5,000 employees, 1,000, 5,000 employees being the minimum here. You know, not a not a super hard definition on that, just so people know. Yeah, and I think um, while we're waiting for some uh, questions from the team, I wanted to pose, because I've spoken with various companies like this too, especially in our context. And I think one of the things that comes up is, basically expressing like they understand and they see through even our story and others how LinkedIn organic and podcasting can really work. But for whatever reason, because the organization is so large, they just think that that's not possible to them, but are seriously considering the paid social approach. Um, That is something that is more digestible by some of these larger companies. And so you know, we have a very specific organic strategy. Um, we're often recommending the paid strategy. Talk about what, what the ideal mix is and like what maybe is just more realistic. Like these companies are so massive. They have so many constraints. There's so many people. It's incredibly difficult to influence a change of mindset. But like, how do you get your foot in the door to start at least driving results? I think the paid social approach is how you actually, I think that's like the, the wedge in. Yeah, I mean, just just to be clear, the only difference between running a LinkedIn ad and posting LinkedIn organic is it's just a distribution. It's whether you're paying for distribution, whether you're getting it for free, whether it's targeted, or whether it's organic. And so when we think about social, I don't think a lot of people think that way. Because when people think about paid, they think about we need to get leads, we need like some type of direct response action, we need some type of outcome. And they don't think that way in organic. And so I'm just trying to push people that you could use paid in the exact same way as organic just to drive content targeted through. A lot of people know that message about what we talk about here. I don't see 
why one or the other wouldn't work. When you think about organic in the enterprise, the reason that people don't do it is one, it takes an enormous amount of talent to do that. There's a bunch of judgment inside of the companies. You've got a thousand people. There's somebody that's going to be doing that. There's a bunch of people that are going to be judging you for going out and doing something unique and different, especially at the beginning, which is scary for some employees. They definitely measure on the wrong things. So any type of organic strategy, they're just going to like look at enterprise companies and what they do on organic. Mail it in. Post a pumpkin on Thanksgiving. Post a case study that no one listens to. Publish PR releases that nobody engages with. And so it was like generally the wrong mindset. And then the last one is that in order to make this stuff work, the level of time to get to the, the level of success that an enterprise company would want is years. And so people were not going to put in that amount of effort to get there, even though if they got there, it would completely change their company. And so those are some of the things on the organic side, just paid, make it more digestible for people. That's what I'm finding too. Sure. The thing is that they go into paid with a different mindset than organic. And the true outcome is to do both at once with slightly different strategies between the two. Paid being a lot more demand, trying to a little bit more short-term focus and organic being way more long-term customer focus. And that, that the blend of those two is what I would recommend. Our friend Anna has a hot take. Paid social equals sales. Organic equals marketing. What is your response to that hot take? Nice one, Anna. <laughs> that's, that's what most people think, but it doesn't have to be that way. Okay. Um, and so like in 2017, 18, we were doing marketing through the channel to deliver clinical trials, case studies, different things like that, not looking for leads, not looking for sales, looking to help the market understand way more about our product. Because if we weren't doing it through that channel, then we were just hoping they find us in a medical journal or we were going to wait for our sales rep to cold call them and try and give them a pitch. And I was like, why don't we just give all this information to people in a much more effective, cost-effective and just generally more effective way? And so most people go into it with a sales mindset, but it doesn't have to be that way. So our good friend David does have a comment uh, to add to this conversation. So I'm going to bring you on, David. Nice hat. <laughs> Thank you. So just a comment for the conversation, really, not to say I have an answer, but just as a comment, right? A lot of companies that are targeting enterprise accounts will have direct sales reps. And a lot of companies that have direct sales reps will have a named account model of some nature. Totally. Okay. And when there are a lot of sales reps, you'll often have a field marketing organization distributed around the geography, wherever the reps are around the country. And so a lot of, their, a lot of the work that the sales team sees is actually coming from field marketing. Whereas a lot of other marketing, the marketing that we talk about here a lot, for sales, is very often rather invisible. They don't see it, they don't touch it. I'm not here to say it's better or worse. That's not my point. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to kind of share that, that kind of context for a lot of, not everyone, but a lot of organizations, if you're in a marketing team where you're targeting enterprise accounts, and if you happen to have a fairly large deployment of sales reps, it causes dynamics that you've written about um, and perhaps it's, I just wanted to kind of drop this context in and then see where you want to go with the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the comment. I, this is great because before I was doing demand gen, 
I was basically a combination of a field marketer and a product marketer. It was in the main, mainly fields, right? So going out with the, the reps, going to local conferences, meeting and helping them try and close big deals, whether that's in net new meetings or active in pipeline, some type of conference work, sales enablement, like all of that stuff. And yes, the sales team does see that stuff more because it's in their face, right? And I w- nobody told me that we should go out, like I should stop doing field marketing and I should go and do demand gen. Nobody at the company told me. I was just like, in order to grow this business, I need to stop doing this and trying to do basically help the sales team close sales one by one when we're losing a lot of them. And I need to go and try and move a market. I need to go out over the top demand marketing so that the market knows more about it and then comes to our all of our 40 reps at once. So instead of trying to have one conversation with one person at this hospital in San Diego, I need to be having 100 conversations a day in Facebook ads, comments, or other things like that so all of these people know more about our product. And so I made that transition. What the sales team sees in that, in that case is what their customers tell them. I don't like the, using the word prospects. We'll use future customers. What their future customers tell them in meetings. and the overwhelming thing that what we're hearing is I always see your content in Facebook. It really works for me. Or I love that video podcast that you were doing. That was the feedback that was coming from meetings to reps back to HQ. And so reps do see it. It's just in a different way. And it also depends on how effective that you're actually doing demand, right? Like in 2014, I've been a demand marketer where I would have never gotten that feedback from reps because I wasn't doing very good marketing. So yeah. Well, so I totally agree. Everything you're saying. One one of the other things perhaps useful to point out or differentiate or decide to talk about and you know or not talk about, there's the top of funnel. And then there's so we're in a sales cycle. And the sales cycle mm-hmm. could be a lengthy sales cycle. And so a lot of marketing by field marketing in particular, designed to help move pipe, right? Yep. So it's not about opening a new opportunity. It's about the opportunity that's already there. And you're in competition with two or three main players who are known to your, your buyer, that the, the market is kind of di- divided up between two or three large players. And the buyer is going through an extended process to determine which of those buyers or, or philosophies almost they're going to buy into. And so the field marketing team might be involved in marketing activities over a period of four or five months in a sales opportunity for that account. So just to have mentioned this, because again, I think that the things you talk about can contribute towards this and can help towards this. We don't really talk about them very often, or at least I don't see you write about them as advancing pipe. It's always kind of top of final opening new opportunities. But Mm the same idea that you talk about, I'll just kind of go ahead and say what I think, I guess. I was trying to just open the conversation. (laughs) What I think is a a lot of the same motions have to conserve the purpose of trying to move the account forward on an opportunity that's already there. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll just stop and uh, thank you for letting me drop the comment in. I appreciate. Yeah, I always always appreciate the thoughts. It gets me it gets me thinking. There's a couple directions I want to go with this one. So the first thing that's interesting that I recognize that I don't talk about it a lot in terms of how much it's impacting pipeline, but like my belief, one person's belief, the way that we're doing marketing right now is a bet more effective way of doing pipeline marketing than what most B2B companies do right now. But the challenge is that what B2B companies are looking for is tracking every single touch. 
And so, and what we're doing is all things that aren't being tracked. So when somebody takes our podcast that marketing is about pure offense and all the things that you could do if you start building marketing, what the impact that makes on your business over a two, three year period of time. And a VP takes that out and sends it to the CEO of a thousand person company while they're in pipeline, not being tracked, probably more impactful. Speaking of, I wanted to get onto this. This was a, uh, a potential topic for tonight that I didn't put on the agenda, but I'll, I'll kind of go through it, which was, I went through it a little bit in Demand Gen Live last week, but it was about I want to talk through some of the examples of things that of what companies measure versus the things that aren't being measured. And then we can decide which ones are more impactful. Companies are measuring email opens. They're measuring uh, form fills. They're measuring display ad impressions to an account. They're measuring website traffic from an account, like that type of stuff. And let's talk through some of the things that aren't being measured, and then we'll decide. So CEO listens to that podcast for 60 minutes, not being tracked. CMO watches a seven-minute video inside of the LinkedIn feed, doesn't comment, doesn't like it, just watches it, not being tracked. Somebody that's on this Zoom, like, hears something that I say about a certain technology tool, and then they go and think about buying it, not being tracked. I've been through these examples a lot, but I'm trying to get even more specific with them because like we are we are so lost in B2B marketing about measuring stuff and like completely losing the idea of what touch points actually matter. And I'm not even sure how I got on that topic, but <laughs> that was what got in my head, David. So I appreciate that. We just really need to think about the impact of these touches, whether or not we can actually measure them with software. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave with one thought. One of the biggest challenges is when you do account-based marketing, can you take this method, this, this approach that you talk about, and bring it down to an individual account? So I don't know if there's an answer to that or not. Every, everyone's going to have different facilities to create and to iterate quickly, but that's where it starts to head. Uh, once you've done it for the overall market, can you do it for niches, for industries? Can you do it then within industries for individual accounts? So that's, I believe, yeah. where the, the, the future will be, but we're not there yet. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'll Thanks, David. happily go back on you. Bye-bye. Yeah. It's so, last part here, just to reflect on that, it's so interesting, right? Like we have probably somewhere between a 5,000 and a 10,000 account total addressable market that could fit into our ICP. And we don't have at all a named account strategy, but a lot of B2B companies that have that size of TAM have a named account strategy. I actually don't think that it's needed. I think that it's like if you have a 5,000, 10,000 account TAM, then one, if you're winning at the super enterprise, that's awesome. Maybe you should make your TAM smaller. And if you're not and your TAM actually is that size, you should be looking at more of a like demand one to many model, especially at the infancy of building a company. So those are a couple of things that I think about strategy when most companies because have adopted ABM because what they were doing, in mar- not because ABM is perfectly appropriate for their business. But because what they were doing in marketing before was so bad that almost anything that they changed to would be better. All this right. topic has continued to spur questions. Can we do a couple more on this? Of course, yeah. Keep it going. Uh, this agenda topic was hotter than I was expecting. I'm going to bring uh, Kelvin on. You had a great question, Kelvin. You can ask live. And then I'm going to ask a question on Andrew's behalf right after. Kelvin. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So my question is about buying committees. So in a lot of these enterprise organizations, 
you know, you have you usually have a few people involved and they have different responsibilities. So how does that affect or how should that shape your demand gen strategy? So for instance, you know, mm-hmm. if your target market is or main persona is like market researchers, but the CMO signs off on it, the security team signs off on it, like do you need to like kind of tweak your podcast or your videos to kind of appeal to everyone or would you focus on one persona? I think that's what Gartner would tell you to do, <laughs> right? And so like, I've read up a lot on buying committees. We deal with them in our business and a lot of our customers deal with them as well. And so like some companies, when they think about their intent driven outbound, like they won't go outbound until like six people from the buying committee have been on the website. And then I'm thinking like, wouldn't it be the same thing if the CMO, who's the true decision maker, took a video or a podcast or any other piece of content that was out there, a blog, it doesn't really matter. A blog would have tracking, so probably not a blog, but podcast or otherwise. And then take that piece of content and then take it and put it in their leadership, senior leadership team Slack channel. And then all of the people in there look at it, which one's more valuable? And so... The interesting thing to think is if you have a content-driven motion and you are able to elevate and communicate at a business level as opposed to a individual contributor level, like I know that my content gets shared inside of senior leadership Slack channels and it closes deals for us and it moves a buying committee forward. And so, but do I care if all of them have been on the website? Do I care, like, do I, before things happen? No, I create the information that enable my decision maker that once they know that they want to work with us, that they have all the information and ammunition they need to go and move that process forward internally. And so companies have a very different understanding. They create separate content for security and IT and marketing and this, and they try and go outbound individually to those things or run ads individually to those stakeholders as if it's super important. And like the director of IT, I don't think cares, right? And so my feeling is that you need to win the decision maker and then the decision maker can either leverage your content to quote unquote pre-sell or sell internal people with content. Most likely before they come inbound to us, they're going to do that. Right. They're going to get other people on board. They're going to talk to people. They're going to be sharing information. I know that people share my information for six months before they the numbers are always, but like six months or more information is getting shared in a Slack channel before a company would come inbound to work with us. And on the second side, if decision maker comes inbound or you start something, then at that point, getting the buying committee on board is really a sales responsibility. So it's just my opinion. I know a ton of people are going to disagree with me on this, but I think that there's two reasons that people are going to disagree with me on it. One is that what everything that I just said really breaks down if you don't if you're going outbound. Really breaks down if you're going outbound. So that's one one big thing. And the second thing it goes back to the same point is that if you've never done really effective marketing and felt the impact of that, you're not gonna believe a lot of the things that I'm saying. You're not gonna be able to really feel how like if you created content that people really wanted that like that the head of sales or the, the VP of marketing are going they're gonna sell internally to everyone. You don't have to do anything. And so it's like a completely different way of looking at it with enabling your buyer to 
learn, discover, and then sell the, sell themselves in their own organization versus having your salesperson try and like convince a bunch of people? That's a great question, Kelvin. And actually, Andrew kind of poses an assertion that is the perfect kind of uh, next step to build on this topic. So kind of to build on what you were saying, Kelvin, Andrew's saying enterprise, there's generally more people involved, decision by committee. Enterprise companies are typically structured for like risk aversion. They embrace the status quo. Marketing starting a conversation seems not necessarily really any different at the enterprise versus SMB, but converting that does take more work and alignment at the enterprise level. And so he's saying, would you agree that the sales motion is significantly different at SMB to enterprise, for example, but really effective marketing is effective marketing and the tactics, he sort of like basically kind of summing up your assertion. Would you, is that accurate or how would you clarify that? So one, it's totally clear that the sales motion between enterprise deal and a velocity 4K CV product are totally different. So I'm going to be on board with that. When it comes to whether you do effective marketing, I like if we think about the marketing that we're doing right now or the marketing that I'm just going to use the examples that a lot of people end up pulling out. So Gong or Drift, it doesn't matter whether their product costs a million dollars a year, $5,000 a year or what it actually costs because the marketing is really good. They have the attention of their target customers and they have a clear, compelling story about why people want to buy. That's what marketing is. I'm sort of in agreement with you that great marketing, regardless of, can look the same regardless of the velocity of the sales. A lot of people won't think that way because they're doing ABM or they're running performance marketing to get a bunch of leads to sell 3K ACV deals. But if you did good marketing, then I think it could play across an ACV or a company size spectrum. It's a good, good comment, Andrew. Yeah, I love it. Man, we... We thoroughly discussed that agenda item. Do you want to jump to the next one or do you want? <laughs> definitely got into that one. Yeah, let's jump. Next one we got here. I've been bringing it up a couple times, but haven't like really formally discussed it. And so I got a couple notes here. We'll see where we end up. And the topic is how, in quotes, data-driven companies lie to themselves about being data-driven. It's, re- it, it's, it's, re- it's really fascinating. And so here are some of the things that I'm seeing in the market. I see it a bunch. And so what companies do, and I'm talking specifically in marketing, but you could apply this to a ton of different business units. And I'll probably pull an example in sales later on in the talk as well. They create all of these constraints up front in marketing. We need to have attribution on leads. They need to be at the channel level. This is what we're going to measure because our technology is, that's how our technology measures it. So we're just going to only be able to measure things that the tech can use, and we're only able to deploy things that the tech can deploy. So we have all of these constraints. And then we're going to collect, we're going to do a bunch of marketing and collect all this data and create all of these top of funnel metrics, which is typically what it is. We're going to create all this data. And now we have 30,000 leads. We We have attribution on all of the leads, which is amazing since we were required to do it that way. So we couldn't have done anything else in marketing. We had to get the leads that way. And so we got them. And then once they have all of that data, they literally never analyze it. They just collect data. They don't actually drive decisions off of it. And that's the really fascinating one. The easiest example here is on the split the funnel analysis. And so like, I've done this for, I think, probably 50 companies at this point over the past two and a half. 
two and a half years going in there. And I'm hearing about like on the last demand gen live, there was a talk about company, a company that had ran Facebook ads for a year. And it took them a year to realize that it wasn't working. And there are companies that are doing that in a bunch of content syndication, all the things that I normally talk about, basically just low intent lead gen channels that are collecting leads. And they're like, they set up the constraint that this is what we need to do in order to measure it. But then they never actually, if they actually looked at the data ever, it would be like, this is so bad. Why would we keep doing this? And so the interesting distinction about whether you just love collecting data in a certain way or whether you actually like analyzing it and making decisions off of it, that's one. The second thing that I'm finding that's super fascinating is that they don't look at data in order to drive decisions. They just look for data to support the things they already believe in. They look for information in order to prove the things that they already believe in some level of like a confirmation bias. So easy example, you're looking through, you just raised a big round of funding. You're trying to decide how you're going to allocate allocate that type of funding. You could go success, marketing, sales, some blend of them. And when you look at the data, you can basically manipulate the data to show that you could make all three separate investments. You could make the case for any of them. And so what companies will do is they'll figure out what they want to do first, and then they'll run through an analysis to create the data to prove to themselves that they should be doing what they thought they were going to do anyway. And so those are a couple of things that I've noticed in being data-driven. Like Most marketing teams aren't. It's real, really interesting. And so another thing to think about, and this is really interesting, like data-driven doesn't mean quant, doesn't always mean attribution, doesn't always mean data is automatically collected, doesn't mean it gets attached to opportunity records. That's just what you've made it in to be. But it could be qualitative, could come from a survey, could come from a comment, could come from word of mouth, could come from what somebody said to your sales rep on their second call. And so what people consider data versus they limit the the data points and the type of data that they could actually use to make decisions when there's a ton of insights that are qualitative that could probably inform better decision making if you considered them. So we'll round out the data-driven talk there, but this one's really, really fascinating. We got a few questions on the topic. So Love it. We're going to keep it going. I'm going to bring on our good friend, Omar, first, and then we might have uh, David back on after. Omar, you are on Demand Gen Live. All right. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, Omar. Good to see you again, man. Always good great. Too. Absolutely. I always like when Megan says, our good friend, Omar, it gives me like a very warm, fuzzy feeling. I, I, I feel that's like the goal. That's, that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, on the data side, my question is this is um, on one one side, you know, I've noticed the need for like how much easier my life would be if we had someone internal who is called like an automation slash marketing ops person. They live in the CRM, they're automating things, they're making sure the data is there and the reporting's there, right? Because as we all know, even if you have HubSpot, it it can get very difficult, especially when you're trying to figure out attribution. So mm-hmm. what do you do in a situation like that when you can't hire somebody like does it make sense to contract somebody out? Does it make sense to do with an agency? Is it something where you say, well, if you're going to consider doing that, you need to just hire that person? That's the first part of the question. The second part is a lot of data, I think that 
it's very easy to get caught in the weeds, you know, because as you start playing with more data, it's like, oh, if you look at it like this way or that way. And so maybe I know you've done this many times before, but kind of give a high level of like, these are the most important ways to look at data from a marketing and sales perspective that's actually going to help you, right? Because mm-hmm. I think like, for example, I think looking at certain pieces of data, like impressions of like, who cares, right? And very, very last thing I would, um, I'm just going to add just for context, I realized this week that the way I was looking at my data was I was actually constraining my marketing team because we were looking purely just at like inbound organic MQLs, which is a very hard metric to look at and not looking at things like upstream, like, okay, well, how many leads and subscribers actually came in and what can we do with those people to kind of move them forward? So didn't have much of a question. I kind of threw a lot of scenarios at you once, but you're very good at picking this kind of stuff apart. (laughs) So on the, on the op side, Given where you are, my gut tells me that you need to simplify, that you don't actually that you don't actually need that person right now, that you just need to simplify what you're doing. HubSpot mm-hmm. is almost 100 percent plug and play with this. Like you shouldn't need almost anything. It's just like, can you create the teal? Uh, do you have contacts attached? Everything else, if your sales team does those things, everything else happens automatically. The second piece of it is that as you know, because you come here almost every week, like the data that those tools are generating is incredibly flawed. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, so, yeah. We're, we went through this just the other day. Someone mm-hmm. came in inbound to our website and, you know, in terms of, you know, so it's, it's, it's organic search, lead source attribution. They heard us on a podcast, right? That was external. So it's like, okay, external podcast. But then, it was, mm-hmm. but then that same person said, yeah, but I also talked to a customer. So what the hell do you do with that? This is <laughs> you know? this is case in point. It's acknowledging how people buy. There's going to be some level right. of awareness. They're going to do and, some word of mouth activities, and then they're going to come inbound. That's pretty and, much what people do now. Dave and I, Dave Gerhard and I had a talk. Like I think what he said was really important. When you're looking at these types of lead sources, it's directional. You're not looking for it to be perfect, but you're like, okay, so what we heard is someone heard us on that third party podcast. What podcast was it? How do we like, are there other podcasts like that, that we can think about trying to get on? Can we, maybe we can make a deal with that company so we can sponsor their podcast. That's the insight and the accent you take there. And then the second thing, oh, they talk to a customer. The insight that I would get from there is, oh, like probably almost all of our potential customers want to talk to somebody even that early in the buying process before they come and talk to us. How can we set up something where either we can help people be able to identify those people, we can put together a group so that those opportunities happen more frequently. I don't have the perfect solution there, but you can think about how you could take that insight and put it into your strategy. And then you do that level of qualitative create demand attribution on a hundred deals that close and you get a ton of qualitative insights and you build a, you see where I'm going with this. Like you can basically build your marketing strategy off that instead of what you're getting in HubSpot. HubSpot usually, or whatever, I'm saying HubSpot, but it could be visible, it could be any of the systems, is going to tell you how someone converted. And that's the only thing that I really, that's what I get out of those systems, is I want to know last touch attribution source and conversion point, that's what I care about. Everything else that that system gives me, to be honest, I think is not that helpful. Can you say, can you repeat that? You said last touch attribution point? Yeah, last touch attribution uh, referral channel, and then where they converted. So organic search into a demo form or paid LinkedIn ad into a newsletter sign up. Like those are some examples. Referral from an affiliate blog, like top 10 
tools for this affiliate blog into our demo form. And when you look at just the path, like I, I'll give you some examples here. Like we're in some we're in some blogs of like top 10 SaaS marketing agencies. We didn't even ask to be in them, but people put us in them. All the leads that come from those referral sources fucking suck. They're so bad. Like they're not even close to our ICP. They have no idea about our differentiation. Like I've debated asking those people to take us out of those things because <laughs> like they're terrible leads. So that's one. Another one that's interesting is that so you can see by where the traffic came from and how they converted, like you can start to get a sense about whether in those patterns are real. Another one is that the people that come through and we have, how did you hear about us on our website? And we ask how they heard about us and they write in SEO or direct search or Google. Those are also our worst leads. Totally unqualified, never convert. Like we put them directly into closed loss. We don't even have a meeting. And so when you think about and so our patterns are unique because of how we market, but you'd be able to see those based on where the traffic is coming from and see the patterns. And so that's what I'm looking for when I look at a HubSpot or like from marketing automation. I want to know what is the direct path of how someone converted because how they get to you and where they what type of conversion they had is the best surrogate that you're going to get for intent. And so that's what I look at from that standpoint. And then it's pure qualitative for like, what was the trigger? Like what channels were they consuming content on? How did they hear about us? What drove them to consider buying? That's all qualitative. You're going to miss most of that with attribution software. So yeah, that's the way I look at it. We do have, and this is coming from your, from your advice about having the, the, the qualitative, like, how did you hear about us? And I need to investigate this because there's been at least more than three or four of them already just in the last couple of weeks that came through for demo requests, which is how do you hear about us? And I'm seeing online or the web. And I'm wondering if, does that mean that they're just seeing us in so many different places? They can't even remember where they, where they found out about us. We're still investigating that, but I, I don't know if that's. Yeah. I mean, it's up to you. Like you could ask the rep to go deeper on the first call. You could do it that way, or you just use that insight and you assume like it just is, it's not clear. And like I said, when you're doing that type of stuff, it's not going to be perfect. It's directional. You have people saying online, that means they don't remember what specific channel that is. It's probably, I would lean into like somebody just found you randomly online, which might lead me to think that they're probably not totally qualified. Got it. Yeah. You asked some stuff about like, what would you look at? It's a ultra, it's an ultra. It's a very broad. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's an, it's a really complex question. I think that the level of intelligence and understanding about how the process works and how customers are buying informs how you look at the data in order to get good slices, right? So like on the on the x-axis, if you use create date, stage three date, or close date, you're going to get different trends, and it's going to lead you to a different conclusion. So knowing which date property you should use in the x-axis for whatever you're trying to glean is really important. A lot of marketers don't know how to choose that, don't know right. which whether we use create date or close date. And so when you think about being data-driven, a lot of people don't know which one of those to look at, which can lead them to misinterpret the data and make the wrong decision. So that's, like if they that's, choose too, too long of a timeline, they're going to pick up like, oh, they went to all these different pages and things, which in reality, those things were so far back, it doesn't even matter. It, what's more important is getting like a sort of a tighter timeline between, let's yeah, say, like, yeah. easy, easy example here. Like we have a 180 day sales cycle and in December, we closed all of this business. And so, and if you look at it by close date, you're going to be like, what were we doing in December that 
was so good. How do we replicate that? But if you looked at it based on when the opportunities were created, you would see that it was actually spread out and that your major impact was actually in September. And you'd have to go back and reverse engineer what you were doing in September to create those. And ideally, you set that up so you know how to look at it the right way. So you see a big spike in qualified opportunities created in September and you can act on that straight away, not when you see it close in December. So we're getting into some weed details, like some of the weeds and details here. So I'm going to kind of pull back out. The last thing on is this is not a knock on marketing ops. I'm just calling it how I see it from a lot interacting with a lot of marketing ops people. A lot of marketing ops and rev ops people are data and tech people first Mm. and marketing and customer people second. Mm. And when you get that, you get a lot of, lot of the wrong types of charts, a lot of misinterpretations of data, a lot of wrong decisions because you're looking at it purely based on the tech, not layering on customer understanding. So just to repeat back to you, I mean, that that was, you you helped change my mind about something. So I really appreciate that. So the main thing is just, simplify it down, pick the right timelines in terms of what you're going to look at, you know, for attribution. And then, you know, more importantly, and I think like there's a lot of, a lot of your, your demand gen wisdom goes back to this is just being extremely intimate and deeply knowledgeable about the actual customer journey and how do they actually buy, you know? And I think that might start qualitatively and then at some point become more quantitative as you start developing more cases. So Chris, mm-hmm. as always, man, thank you so much for helping me out. Happy to help Omar. Good to see you. I was going to sing you too. All right. I got a great question lineup continuing this topic. Community is not letting us down. David, I'm bringing you back. And then Aubrey and Brandon, you're next. So get ready. Nice. Okay, so fun one. I, I, was, I was making a bit of a fun comment, right? So wouldn't it be wonderful if we could find a technology that could track who listens to your podcast, right? So leading from that, you're saying that we're measuring the wrong things. Well, we're just measuring what the tech allows us to measure. If there was tech that would allow us to measure the dark funnel, it wouldn't be dark anymore and everyone would be doing it. So just a just an observation, just a thought experiment. Totally. But my position on this is that people are so over-reliant on tech, all of the information, the data is out there. They just don't go and get it because it's not being supplied to them by software. I know that you and I are sort of aligned here and I think it's great. The long, like, and I don't see it happening unless they find some really creative way to measure it because these platforms have significant privacy policies that would restrict technology from doing that. Spotify, LinkedIn, organic, Instagram, any of those places have no, no incentive to pass you that data in the grand scheme of their business. We're going backwards. I mean, not, I guess backwards is one way to say it, but like, Privacy policies are going in one direction, which is not in the direction of marketers. All these things I love. I don't want people to have this data. I don't want people to be able to, I want cookies to go away. I want all this shit because when all this stuff goes away, the real marketers win. So yeah, I love the clap, Omar. Hell yeah. It's just the truth. And so I expect that actually more and more things will continue to be taken away from marketers. And the advantage here, like, It's going to be really interesting to look, especially like how rapidly marketing is changing. And I believe how how over time it will continue to be harder and harder for people to catch up to what's changing. It'll be really interesting to see what the gap is between the top 1% of marketers and the rest of people pretty soon. I mean, it's enormous right now, but I think that gap will get wider and wider. And I think that people underestimate 
how much one person's contribution to a 30 or 50 person marketing team really makes an impact on some interesting thoughts here, but people should just, just like sports teams find their quarterback, find their running back, find their point guard. And they put a franchise tag on them. They say, I'm going to give you a contract and I want you to be here for the next seven years of your career. When you're in your prime of your career, I wouldn't be surprised if people do that to marketers within the next decade. Let's hope the companies stay in business long enough. <laughs> I'll Good mute point. myself now. Good point. Some bold <laughs> predictions there. Um, love having you on, David. All right. Aubrey has a great question. I'm bringing you on. Welcome to Demand Gen Live, Aubrey. You're on. Thank you. Hey, Chris. My question is, I'm buying everything you're putting down around, you know, measure, measure what matters, focus on not really MQLs and so on, but focus on the revenue and how, how we got the revenue and what that journey's like. What I, my situation is that I have been brought in as a demand gen director at this firm that has no marketing culture, no, no culture of measurement or, well, I guess I'd say have a culture of, of, of being content writers and SEO experts and so on. And that's been the marketing work historically. And I've got in front of me the, the need, I feel like, to build and instill this cultural value of Concepts like the dark funnel, concepts like measuring actually, truly what are all of our parts of the customer journey and which ones are the key parts. Mm-hmm. I guess I'd ask, what advice do you have and for as someone who's deployed this into multiple organizations for a guy like me? Totally. I'm going to get to that question, but your question sparked something that I'm, this is mainly for the audience, but I just want people to think about this for a second. I want the people that are listening to the podcast afterwards in the in the audience to think about whether or not you'd be listening to this podcast right now, if the Refine Lab strategy was primarily on SEO, you would not know me. You would never have discovered the blog. You would not be listening to this podcast or anything. And so that's one, when you think about the impact of SEO over social today, I get that SEO was super impactful in 2009. But if you look at it today, there's a pretty big gap here. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. If you have the bandwidth to do all of that, that's great. But if you think about what is your big driver, people are living in content and social platforms. So I got that through here. So you have a company that's been historically focused on SEO, right? And when you think about creating content for SEO versus going out and creating that for organic social, creating that for a podcast, creating that for paid social, it doesn't work right? Like you almost need a completely different strategy for social, which most people don't understand and respect. So they take their SEO mindset, their SEO strategy, and they try and drop it in. I'm not sure I've told people on this. I'm not, I'm not sure if this was on Demand Gen Live or otherwise, but the core difference about why you can't do that is because in SEO, you're marketing for intent. Somebody wants to say search, they deliver the intent that they want to get this information, and then you give them the information. But when you're in a podcast or where you're in LinkedIn or when you're in a different social platform, people have all of the options out there. They have no intent to find this stuff. So it has to be things that are truly valuable, that they come out and get, that truly understand them, which is why a lot of companies that grow up in an SEO type of mindset and don't evolve don't have success on social. And so that's just kind of top level thoughts. I doubt that I even got close to your question. So why don't you reiterate the question? We'll get in to help you. Sure. this company, you know, they're in this big flux. Demand gen director comes in, marketing head's gone, and 
I want to make sure that I'm instilling the value of this, this way of thinking that I need everybody, yeah. even the SEO team that's going to basically suffer from these changes, see that it is valuable and this does drive better results for this organization. Is what you're thinking is that you're going to take the, like some of the investments going into SEO and move it or like, it's kind of what I gleaned from your question. Yeah. And, and you it. know, we have the typical, like uh pretty milk toast YouTube channel, social channels are all very low risk, low reward. So, you know, examine like where that to those teams are going and what kind of people we bring in and yeah, or that whole analysis. How many employees are at the company? So I have a sense of the scale. About a hundred. Okay, cool. So on the marketing team, you got like five or seven people, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So before making any changes, I would do an analysis of what's going on. And the one of the first things that I would do is I would add the how did you hear about us to the place to the form that's driving the most marketing sourced revenue, which is most likely your demo form. And right. so I would add, how did you hear about us? I would collect data over the next month and I would start to qualitatively look at what you're seeing. Until you have that, it's hard to know like what the state of the SEO strategy is. Like I'm highly confident that what we're talking about would work better, but if there's something that's working, there's no sense in stopping all of that, right? So let's get an assessment. My guess, and I think what a lot of companies that are focused on SEO, like just literally don't see this data, is that if you put that thing out there, you would get word of mouth a lot. Like, I don't think that people would say, I found you in search, even though attribution is telling you that. So getting right. that piece of data is really interesting. The next thing that I would do is I would go out and talk to people that are either your customers or people that could buy your product, but don't use it right now, probably some combination of both, and try and start to learn about where they're getting information or where maybe even easier to say about where they where they spend time on a mobile device. It's not ultra complicated. You're gonna, the answers are obvious, but maybe you get a better indicator than just like LinkedIn or you know what I mean? You get true data from customers to figure that stuff out. You find out where they are, you start seeing what's going in, on in there, and you can start to formulate a plan. So I guess what I'm saying is you don't need to make changes straight away. You can start to collect data. You can start to formulate your own strategy driven through customer insights that you're gonna get which probably over the next 60 days allows you to put like you collect that data, you understand customers, you can put together more of a holistic plan about how you're going to shift resources. And the last thing that I'll say is that most marketers can't shift from SEO to social. So if you are planning on doing that, you might want to think a little bit differently because I haven't seen that work in a lot of instances. It can work, right? I'm sure someone's listening. They're like, hey, Chris, whatever. Like, I've done that before, right? Like, I used to do SEO and I've made that. But like, people that are still doing SEO right now, I think just dropping them from that into LinkedIn, you might want to find someone that's like, that's more like social predominantly to fill that. So those are some thoughts. Would love to answer a follow-up, go a little bit deeper. Yeah, that was uh, very insightful. I mean, you get right to the point of, you know, ask the customer. And I, I, I don't believe we have anything other than full 30 minute productions on interviewing our customers. And we've never once actually had these conversations around what are you doing in your free time on your phone? You know, mm -hmm. um, so we can find out that perhaps they're on Instagram or on Twitter or what have you um, engaging. So yeah, I'm tracking with the social media kind of hiring problem too, because we have the typical um, 
I'm good at social media in my personal life type person that has no marketing clout or capability on the social side. So I guess going back to the point around identifying, uh, building this culture, what's your advice for, I guess, solving for these results don't cut it for a person who's been here for four years, three years. And we see growth because we will see growth with a better strategy, but we want to see huge growth. Does that yeah, make sense? You, you talking about like how you go about finding and hiring these people? I'm not sure I fully understand. Um, generating buy-in or buy-out, so to speak, or strategies that aren't working, right? Oh, yeah. If you haven't referenced the, the uh, last week's Demand Gen Live podcast, there was a seg- I'll go through some of it with you, but there was a segment called You Don't Need More Budget about 30 minutes in, which was basically all about if you assessed and you found all the things that weren't working, you just said, we're going to stop doing these things. You'd have 20 to 50% of your budget that you could go and redeploy to things that work. And so it's about some level of, of data analysis. Like we talked about being data driven, like most companies have the data, they just never look at it and they never make the hard choices. So there's probably data in there. There might be some things that like, for me, an easy example in 2018 was like, our trade shows were we were spending 35% of our total marketing budget if you include headcount programs tech 35% of the total marketing budget was spent building trade show booths and sponsoring conferences and most of the revenue that we were getting was expansion revenue almost no net new revenue off that and so what i my position was like if we could we can go and get expansion revenue without having a booth we can set up the meads we can do the dinners we can do all that stuff without having a booth but I want this $1.6 million back so that we can go and do a different type of marketing. And so sometimes there's there's nuances to it. If you just look at the data and you didn't segment out between net new and expansion, you might be like, oh, we're spending $1.6 million on these trade shows and we're get, we got $2 million this year. Oh, this isn't so bad. But if you say, okay, I just want to look at net new. The only reason to have a booth at a conference is to win net new deals. If you're looking for expansion, you don't need the booth in order to do that. And so when you split that off, you're like, shit, these trade shows really aren't working. Right. Um, okay. So there's some data analysis to it. There's some intuition and there's some just like, there's some hard choices, right? Like, could SEO benefit my company right now? Sure. So could a lot of other marketing tactics, but we only have so many resources. We only have so many people we're trying to grow. And so it's like, it really is picking the three, four things out of a portfolio. They're going to be able to deliver both in the short term and the long term. And then as you grow and you are getting success and you're getting more budget and you're hiring people, you start to make strategic expansions in how you build out the mix. Yeah. I got it. Cool. So basically know the customer fully so you can prove these cases around shifting the strategy and the budget and then move forward on a data-driven basis. Yeah. Cool. And then you don't you don't and you also don't need to make a hard stop. Like we're okay, we're gonna stop everything that we're doing. We're gonna completely yeah. shift. And so there's ways to like kind of phase it in, which most likely the right way to do it too. Cool. Thanks, man. Awesome, man. Happy to help. All right. Um, Brandon, are you still on? I'm going to bring you on to ask your question. Welcome to Demand Gen Live. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, hey, great. Brandon. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Long time podcast listener, but first time on the show. So I appreciate you guys uh, taking the time great. to hear out my question. I'm coming from a little bit different perspective. I'm coming from a B2B services industry, not necessarily uh, SaaS. And so I recently joined a, a somewhat sales-centric organization and in industry. Uh, the industry, is, it's very common for us to have 100% uh, 
commission salespeople uh, and very little marketing. The way that they capture market share is to essentially put hordes of individuals into the field and go out and establish relationships and win business. Mm-hmm. Our model is a little bit different. We have a smaller sales team um, that is a mix between upside and salary. And so the best way for us to differentiate and capture market is, in my opinion, marketing. And so we're dealing yeah. with a culture shock a little bit, right? And in, in getting into marketing, it's always been the same way. And so we have this really interesting you know, challenge and opportunity right now is this balance between starting with performance marketing, which is much closer to sales and my team is a little bit more comfortable with versus pure demand. But I know that performance marketing long-term is going to drive the wrong behaviors. And so kind of curious. Short-term too. Yeah, short-term. Running performance marketing for your 100% commission reps and passing leads with low intent over there to them, they're going to hate you. Within three or four leads per rep, they're going to be like, this is a waste of time. I'm going to stop following up with all leads of marketing. They're going to take 48 hours to respond. You're just going to spin your wheels, creating leads that people don't follow up with because these types of reps, their time is valuable. They're on a hundred percent commission. And if they get enough data to say, this stuff is not going to help me get any commission, then they're going to stop following up with them. And when you generate, when you run performance marketing, which is going to be low intent leads, that's where you're going to end up with. The second part is like performance marketing plus service business is a complete recipe for disaster, <laughs> right? Like it sucks in product companies. But it's even worse in service companies. Yeah. And so those are a couple of things to consider. The what I would do if I were in your shoes is that I would, you're gonna have to do other things, but this is this would be like where I this is where I put my eggs in a basket for like to really win, is that I would create a podcast, but I would position it as we are going to have the best podcast in the industry so that all of our as a sales enablement tool so that all of our reps understand exactly what's going in the market when they're around doing field rides or visiting customers or whatever, they can listen to this so that we have the most expertise. And so it's an interesting way to position it. I think that that, I think if you say, Hey, we're going to start a podcast in the sales driven company, I think it's going to get shut down. I think if you position it about how it helps the whole sales team, then you'll get more buy-in, even though what you're actually trying to do is drive awareness in the market. So yeah. that's one thing that I would definitely move to? Um, and then who are you selling to? Well, b- before you even go there, I just want to add one point of cl- clarification. So all of our competitors take a 100% commission sales model. We're, we're different. So we have a small salaried sales team that Got is it. much more consultative in our approach. So Understood. we're not, you know, we don't have the magnitude of the sales force that our competitors do. And so that's mm-hmm. how we're kind of dealing with it. We're selling to you know, if we're selling to an SMB, usually it's C-suite, it's consensus, uh, you know, CEO, CFO, COO is going to be involved in the decision-making process. If we're selling into an enterprise-level account, it's probably going to be a head of real estate or it's going to be a head of corporate real estate or a facilities manager, most likely. Got it. What are you selling? Well, we're selling commercial real estate services, brokerage services, mostly. You know, we would go into an enterprise-level account and help them manage their commercial real estate portfolio. And so mm-hmm. it's going to be, you know, it could be a transaction that happens, you know, once every couple months in a big organization that has 3 million plus square footage, or it could be a transaction that happens once every 10 years for a small mid-sized business. Mm-hmm. And you can sell nationally or is it only regional? How does that work? Yep. So we are, um, we're regional. So we are Minneapolis based. We focus on our immediate geography and actually mm-hmm. we roll up under a, a straw, an umbrella 
organization. And so you, you imagine you have mothership and then there are individual offices in each of the geographies mm-hmm. where you're responsible for selling. Yeah. So with all of that context, what I would do is I would, I know that we're in kind of a weird situation and events are iffy, but I would figure out how to like, when you're in a geo local type of place, I love the combination of events that create digital content that get published on social channels that kind of open it up. You could even think about a group, Minneapolis commercial real estate pros, or, you know, some type of Facebook group. It's different in a service business, but it's also different when you're local, right? A lot of people that listen to this podcast, they're trying to sell nationally. They're trying to sell globally. Right. And so when you're local, you can do things different when, when it's local. I think that groups play very well because it can be very specific. I think that like a high frequency of events, can be very helpful that, and when you do events, the whole purpose is to one, obviously uh, like network and meet people and create an experience, but also to create, make sure that you're recording content so that that content can then get published either in the group, can get published on social about the dynamics of real estate or different things like that. So you're almost using physical events in order to create like digital content and experiences. Those are some things that I would do. And then if you needed a performance tactic, then I would do, I would think very deeply about the offer and how you can make the offer truly valuable. And then I would go local direct mail. So good advice. But when you do the direct mail, it's like, I can't give a good example. I don't love this example, but I can't think of anything else. So like the HubSpot website grader or like something like that, how do you make it? So it's not just like, come get our sales pitch. Cause even on this direct mail, I'm sure that your sales cycles are pretty long. I'm sure it's if they're not in the in market right now, you they might not be in market for a long time. So like, how do you, for the people that aren't going to be in market for a long time, how do you make sure that you're the, when they come in market, you're going to be the person? Yeah, it's that, it's that affinity um, that we're really trying to build. And again, I've been a long time listener of the podcast and just trying to, we know that there may be our customers in market that they're not ready to, to move or to move on a transaction for five plus years. And so that's a really long sales cycle, right? Yeah. And how do we how do we continue to provide value to them over that period of time? And so when it does come time for them to start thinking about working with somebody, they think about us first. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to content, you might need to expand outside of real estate, right? So good example here, like we run demand and our like the things that we talk about in this podcast are in way more breadth and detail than the things that we actually sell. And so you might need to get there if it's if it's like facilities or different things like that. You might have or a business. You might have to think about how to get it out like a level up from real estate, so that people, when they're not in the real estate market or they're not interested in real estate, can still get value from the content, which then creates value for you. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a great point. I think really for us at the end of the day too. Before we talk about real estate, we talk about a lot of other things. We talk about workforce, we talk about logistics, we talk about planning, we talk about location. So those are all great opportunities for content creation. And then kind of, we also do have really good data too on when people are going to come into market. The reality mm-hmm. about our Based industry- Based on leases and stuff like that. That's right, exactly yeah. right. So if you're 18 months out, we know that if you're considering a move, you're going to be looking now. If you're not going to move, your landlord is going to have leverage on you. And so we know when that period of time is and that perhaps could change our marketing strategy. Cool. So great. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Hope, hope that was valuable for some of the other folks in the audience too. Yeah, I know, Brandon, it's a little was, bit different, different example. It's super important to look at different examples because there's the nuances there, right? Like the local nuances for some people listening 
I think are really important too. So I appreciate you asking the question and I enjoy when there's some that are a little bit outside of what we normally talk about. So thank you. Yep. Thank you guys. Great to have you on the show, Brandon. All right. I have a question that I'm going to ask on behalf of Warson. Um, he just landed his first role as a customer marketing manager and it's the first ever customer marketing hire. Uh, his mandate is to create a cross-sell marketing plan and strategy. They sell contact center software and a, and a lot of their customers, you know, don't have the entire suite of products that they offer. He does have a target account list of current customers that he wants to cross-sell. What he doesn't know is uh, how he should position the product that they're missing um, and what content and channels to use to build awareness and get them to buy more. So he's curious to get your insight in how he should go about defining his strategy and making his plan. It's interesting in this because depending on what type of marketer you want to be, you could almost be doing sales here, right? So like the mandate is really a, it's really a sales mandate. So that's one thing that I wanted to, to call out here, because if that, if you want to take that directly, it's going to drive your behavior into one direction, which is mostly sales. Now, the way that I would do it, which is way different, may not work in your company, but what I would do is I would first take the time to understand what are what my customers are actually like, what they're trying to learn. And then I would think about how do I create a community for those people, not a user group. So people that are not users of the product that are could become into this group, but I hopefully it's super valuable to the people that are our customers. I would have the group and then I would start moving forward with our narrative about what we're talking about, which will help people. If the product actually needs expansion, then that's what will happen. Things that I break, things that I look at here is like at your company, most likely there's an account manager, there's a CSM, and there might actually be some level of a sales rep that are all trying to get to the same outcome as you. And they're doing that in a certain way. And so as a customer marketer, what can you add to the picture that's different? What most people that are in this role do is they just start doing something similar or helping the other people that are responsible for the sale. And what I'm trying to encourage people to do is what can you do that's unique that those other people wouldn't do that would add a ton of value for your customer. And because it adds a ton of value for your customer, it creates opportunities for them to want to buy more. I think that's good advice. All right. So um, I feel like you have a chili piper party to go to. I'm going to bring on Dave. He wanted to express um, some gratitude about how the content has benefited him. And then we can maybe do some closing thoughts and save that last agenda item for next week so you can get to your party. You read my mind. Um, so Dave, go ahead and come on. I loved your message to me and I'd love for you to share your experience. Okay. Hey, Chris, you may recognize I've been listening to you for months and months. Dave, um, of course I recognize you. Come on. <laughs> You've been on your own. We talk all the time. <laughs> no, not, well, I'm not always, not always online, but what you probably don't know is I listened to every single episode at least twice. And, and in the middle of my daily walk, I often take a note to make a recording to go back to the episode because there's something I wanted to remember from the episode. But I just want to tell you, you know, if I could just share a really honest, incredibly enthusiastic compliment. I've been doing this for a hell of a long time. And I've been in both sales and marketing for a really long time. I'm well beyond retirement age and was starting to feel a little burnt out until I found your podcast. And 
you have completely charged up my battery again. I am so enthusiastic about what you're doing. I value your content so highly. I, and I want to tell you, I just got a gig, or I'm close to getting a gig, with an amazing client, mainly because I sold them your ideas. And I also checked with Megan beforehand to see if they'd be a good client for you. And she said, no, they're not a, a good fit for you. <laughs> or I would have referred them to you because I'm sure you could have done a better job with them than I can. You're going to crush but, it. But, you know, I just, I just got to tell you, what you're saying is so interesting. Uh, I, could, I could make a second career out of just following you around like that guy Boswell followed Samuel Johnson around in the 17th century, just writing down the good stuff he says. And publishing it. And, you know, uh, you're blushing. I can see it. But oh, know, yeah, that's, man. that's how good your content is. And that's how grateful I am to you for sharing it all. It's unbelievable. Really appreciate you sharing that. It makes me super happy that you're energized, that you're fired up, that you're getting customers. Um, this is, I love this all is that. The, this is the best, most interesting content on marketing I've heard in more than a decade. And, you know, good for you for sharing it so nice. generously. Thank you so appreciate much. Appreciate you, man. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was great. I don't know how awesome. you're going to follow wow. that up, Chris, with closing I'm, thoughts. <laughs> can we, can we, should we just end there? Dave, you want to finish closing thoughts? Um, <laughs> um, Nothing more to add. <laughs> appreciate all you joining. It was it was interesting for me to do DGL on West Coast times. So we started at 4.30 instead of 7.30, so I'm coming out of here. Normally, it's like 9 when I'm finishing these up and I'm getting ready to go to bed, but it's only five. It's only 5.51 right now, and I'm I got to go to some networking party. I'm going to go to that, have some fun. Um, and then speaking tomorrow, doing a, a keynote talk at Traffic and Conversion Summit, specifically on dark social. I expect that we'll actually get that published on the podcast on Friday. Angelica and some of the people committed to that. So look out for that one. I'm excited. It's uh, This will be the second like kind of major conference that I've done since going back. It's great to be back here. Hope we keep moving in the right direction because this stuff, it's just great to uh, traveling, seeing a lot of people getting out there so with all that said like the the reason that we do this every week one i get a ton of insights which is awesome but like the stuff that dave communicated like i get messages like that a lot it really like it's one of the main reasons we do it seeing a bunch of people that are getting more fired up about marketing that are thinking differently about marketing that are driving their career forward like these are things that i wish that i had when i was earlier in my career so i'm happy that i can i can be that for a lot of you so with all that said, hope you all have a uh, awesome rest of your week. We'll be broadcasting Demand Gen Live from a different location again next week. So stay tuned from that. And we'll see you then. Have a good week, everyone. See you next Tuesday. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.